0: You're listening to, listen to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at Westsideinfo.com. Morning everybody. Good to see you all today. Getting back into the swing of things this week. Went on vacation for a little bit. Went down to the land of Disney. It was an adventure. Um rained on us a few of the days, so that was an interesting experience, Uh, but it was good. It was fun. It was nice to be able to get away and have a little bit of time with the family and just kind of not think about any of the normal things, so that was lovely, Um, but it's good to be back, um, getting back into the regular rhythms. Uh, We're going to be continuing in Acts this week, and I realized as I was preparing, we haven't been in Acts for a while now, actually, um, for going through a whole series on Acts. Um, We had the Sudworths come in and visit, um, talking about the practices of Jesus and actually being a follower of Jesus. And then the following week, I kind of elaborated on that a little bit and being in alignment with what... That's right there. felt like someone was poking me. Um, uh, In alignment with... uh, what the Spirit is doing in our lives and being tuned in to what he's saying and being in step with him and not being ahead and not being behind, but being right with the Spirit of God. And the following week after that, Chuck talked about rest and Sabbath and work and how this is a whole rhythm within our lives to stay healthy and well, well and on track. Um... But we're going to be jumping back into Acts 5 today. I think those three messages were actually very timely in between, kind of highlighting some major things on this walk of being a healthy community um, following after Christ. Uh, In Acts 5, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira and how they were both struck down in testing the Spirit of God. talked about how the disciples were arrested beaten, and then they were freed based on um, some insight and wisdom given by a man named Gamaliel, who was on the council. And he is actually the one who trained up Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. And he is a very wise individual. And he said to all of them, hey, if this is not of God, like all the ones that have come before, it's going to fade out. So just let it fade out. And if it is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it, and you're going to find yourself opposed to God, and that's not where you want to be. And everyone thought and pondered and. Yes, this is actually good wisdom. So they just beat the disciples and then let them go. Um, And within that, there, there are still consequences for breaking the laws of the land that we have to realize in following Christ, is that we don't get exempted from the consequences in which the place we live. We just accept them as a part of being a follower of Jesus. And so today, we're going to delve into this idea of what is my particular role within the church. In Acts 6, we see the church's first major issue and how they resolve that. And who's responsible for what and who should be doing and taking care of which things. And I was thinking about that as a church. um, um, We have an eldership here, and the elders are ultimately responsible for everything, We will go before God and we will be the only ones who answer for what happened here while we were set in oversight of this body. No one else will. And so that's a very heavy thing that we walk with day by day. But the reality is the elders cannot do everything. And so there have to be other roles. There have to be other responsibilities. There have to be things that we have to release to other people to manage, to have this beautiful, wonderful community that we have before us could not possibly exist with just five guys trying to do everything. That's just not reality. And so we have all sorts of manners of roles here. We have, uh, we have kids' teachers. We have check-in people. We have people who make coffee. We have deacons who oversee different ministries. We have home group leaders. We have all sorts of manners of roles and responsibilities that help make everything happen in a wonderful way Um, i want to particularly highlight the home group leaders for a moment and appreciate on them they're partnering with the eldership right now to kind of help us do double duty Uh, we're trying to both go through acts and focus on character this year so they're kind of giving a nice underlying message to everything in the home groups some meet every other week some meet every week and so far they've talked about the things that we all need to walk through with sanctification and it's going to be a while, but the topics we've covered so far are availability, attentiveness, caution, compassion, contentment, courage, decisiveness, deference, diligence, and discernment. And um, I'm going with a group, through a group of individuals with this as well. And I found what's really interesting is not everybody struggles with every single one of those. Some people, one of those topics is going to be not, not an issue at all. God has gifted you in that area, and you're perfectly fine. But there are other issues which you know, and I probably, as I read them, you know it's you. Or if you're in one of the home groups, it made, made for an awkward discussion that night that I really struggle with this, with this particular thing. And so it's a healthy process that as a body of believers, we walk through these things together. So it's a wonderful thing. And so I want to applaud the home group leaders for walking with us through that and so that we can focus in on acts while they focus in on character with us it's a wonderful thing that we're able to work together as a body and so in asking this question what is my role what is what has God called me to be what is called me as an individual me within my family me within my church me within the God's church universal me within work me with my community me within my nation What is God called me to be everyone has something specific that God has a plan for it's whether or not we're walking within that. And when I was considering this, there are, there are three outcomes. One, you are either you're just walking in what God has called you to do. And that's wonderful. You've been able to recognize it. You've heard from God. You've accepted it. You're moving forward within it. You're probably not arrived, but you're moving forward. You're walking in what God's called you to be. And that's where we all really want to be. Two, you have no idea what God's called you to be. You're in that static space right now. It's just, I'm not really sure. And that's not wrong. We do want to find out where God is directing us and so that we've got a place to go. It's not a wrong place to be, but it's really healthy to recognize it and start moving away from that spot to being in step with the Spirit. The third place is the difficult spot to be is when you are resisting what God wants you to be. And I've usually I see it within two realms. One, you covet something else which would be in the sense of, I know God has made me this way, and I'm perfectly fine with that, but I really want that over there. I would really rather that be the calling on my life rather than this be the calling on my life. I'm okay with having all these gifts, but I want more. This is what I experienced for a while. I wanted God's calling on my life to be going and making a lot of money and having a quiet life and just being a part of my community. That's what I wanted my calling to be. That was not God's calling on my life. That was not the giftings he gave me. That's not the way that he had desired for me to go. And so my desire for that was getting in the way of what God wanted. And it was causing me to neglect the gifts he had actually given me and accepting the direction he wanted me to go. The other side of this is just, it's discontentment with who you are. It's not so much that... um, I want all these other things. But more of a, I would rather be anyone but me. And if you're a person that feels that way, you know exactly what I'm saying. If you don't know exactly what I'm saying, this isn't your struggle. But there are people out there that they don't appreciate their gift, they don't appreciate their talents, they don't appreciate who they are. They'd rather be anyone but themselves. And it can be a really difficult place to be. Because you can't be anyone but you. And there's a certain acceptance of that that we all must have, that God has beautifully and wonderfully created each and every one of you for a very specific purpose on this earth. And when we can able to accept that, and accept that God has graciously made this way, that God has a plan for me, and I need to work within the strengths and talents and giftings that He has given me, and the placement that He's put me in, that's when we can start... Um, Falling into, there's a phrase that Steve used to use. Um, You probably, some of you may not know who Steve is. Steve Barr was here for about 21 years and he um, went into full-time apostolic work about three years ago. He used to say being in the slipstream of God's grace. And when you find yourself in that spot where you are actually in step with the spirit, you're in alignment with him, you've really surrendered fully to what God is doing, you find yourself carried along almost uncontrollably And you don't know where you're going, but it's somewhere good. It's somewhere beneficial. It's somewhere that you grow in and you see God's kingdom expanding in. And it's not always easy, but it's good. That's where we want to find ourselves in. So we're going to be looking at this today. What is our role through Acts 6? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of, and of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. There's a problem, and it needs to be solved. But who is going to solve it? So ultimately, the ones that are in charge are responsible for that. That's the apostles, the elders. They're responsible for this. But their job is so big right now that they cannot divide their attentions well. Clearly, things are getting neglected in them trying to do that. Say, so we, we can't do what we've been called to do and manage this at the same time. We recognize it's an issue, but it can't be us who solves it. So, here's what we'll do. We'll get some really great people amongst the community that is high, held in high regard, and we'll have them take care of it. Great. So that's what we're going to look at first. Responsibilities. Who is responsible for what? So when we're looking at this, the problem is being risen from the, between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, just as a little bit of background. Hellenists versus Hebrews. The Hebrews are the ones from Israel, from Jerusalem, born and raised. They've been there for somewhere between 330 years to 400 years. And I say that in that specific Phrasing because 400 years ago they were invaded and most of them were carried away. 70 years after that, some of them were allowed to come back. It's the whole story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, reestablishing a governorship in Jerusalem. Some of them were allowed to come back. Those ones are saved. Those are the ones that are described as Hebrews, native born. Hellenists are those that part of the dispersion. After they were taken away, they all spread out into the outlying areas. They mostly spoke Greek, but it's all manners of different things depending on where they were. But they are the ones from those regions that have come back, and there are actually, a lot of them are elderly because they want to die in Jerusalem for a manner of reasons that are actually rather strange that I'm not going to get into right now because this preach is already going to go really long, but we can talk about it later. Um, but there's a lot of older folks, and so... As we know, women tend to live much longer than men. So there are a lot of widows that want to come to Jerusalem in their final days. A lot of people to be taken care of by the church. And those that have come to Jerusalem are really, really nationalistic. They're really pro-Israel. They're really pro-temple. They're really pro-law. They're really pro-Jerusalem. It's their version of America. Very nationalistic people. There's a reason they've come back to this place over staying where they were born and raised. And that's going to come into play later. But these ones have accepted Jesus as their Savior. They've accepted being a part of the church and being under this um, the authority of the apostles. But there's a problem. You need to have it sorted. So who's going to sort it? So is it going to be elder? Or is it going to be deacons? Or is this role something else entirely? We're going to start talking about different roles here, quite a few of them. Elder versus apostle, first of all, because right now these, the 12, as they're described, are doing double duty. They're doing the role of the apostle, and they're doing the role of an elder. An elder is local governance and care, what we would most commonly think of as a pastor. They take care of discipline, direction, and doctrine, which I'll flesh out a little bit more in a few minutes. Local care, what do the people need is what they are managing. An apostle is translocal. Local versus translocal. Outside of here, they're going, they're sending. Apostles mean sent one. They're the messengers, they're carrying the good news. They are establishing churches. They're setting in elders at other churches. They're training them up in all the things they need, and then they leave again, and they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again, and, it again, and eventually come back home. They stay there for a while, and they go out and do it again. They're all about going, sending. That's the responsibility of the apostles. But there's not just the two. When we look at Ephesians 4, there's a whole five-fold ministry. You've got the pastor, you've got the apostles, but you've also got prophets, evangelists, teachers, and that's it. They're different roles. And we actually run into trouble when we forget that. Because there's a lot of times where we expect the pastor to also be the apostle, to also be the evangelist, to also be the prophet, and also be the teacher. Isn't, isn't that what the pastor, the elders, they're, they're, they're all five, right? They are not. And we can, when the elders start thinking they are, we get into trouble. And when the people start thinking they are, we get into trouble. It's five different giftings the church has given for five different specific roles, five different talents and abilities. People who are gifted pastors just have a deep passion for the body of Christ, for the people. They think about it without having to think about it. It just constantly comes to them, the care of what the people need. Not what people want, but what people need. If you're not, if you don't have that gifting, you can walk it out. But it's work. It involves checklists. It involves procedures. It involves assistance. It involves help. That's me. I don't have the pastor gifting. I have a teacher gifting. I've recognized that for a long time that I have the teacher gifting. God has gifted me to see the word and be able to take it and disseminate it and have it be understood. It's something that he has gifted me in. But it doesn't mean I still don't have responsibilities as a pastor sometimes. And so it's important to recognize I need help with that. And that's why it's a beautiful and wonderful thing that we have a body of Christ and we work together so that when we all come together, things are done healthily and well. But if we don't recognize that these roles are different, we get ourselves into trouble. Now, the role of the local elder. Discipline, that's gentle correction and expulsion if needed. Never had to expel anybody. Thank you that no, we haven't had to do that. We've had a few people expel themselves because they didn't appreciate the gentle correction. There are times when things are not being done in order or behaviors are inappropriate, and we've had to have those conversations. We've had to have A handful of those conversations amongst all of us on the team. Most of the time, we can work through it, we can approach this healthily, we can find restoration, and we move on. But there are some individuals that don't want to, and so they just leave. And it's very, it's sad. It's very sad. But it's a part of what we are called to do. Direction. Church Universal has one direction, and that's to spread the word. That's to teach people about Jesus and teach the things that he's done so that they can teach people about Jesus, so they can teach people about Jesus, so they can teach people about Jesus. It's to introduce people to their Savior. That's the church universal's direction. The flavor of that changes church by church by church by church. It's going to look a little bit different here than it does in South Africa, than it does in South Carolina, than it does in Montenegro. We have to look at what our local church feel is. And so that's why the elders need to go before God and see what is the direction for this church. Doctrine. Looking at scripture. Looking at the original writings. Interpreting what it means, what it doesn't mean. Handling that, disseminating that. That won't all come from right here. Right now, we have looked into scripture and and found that character is crucial. And so that has actually been disseminated to the home group leaders. We, as the elders, researched it, vetted it, went through it, and we've asked others to share it. Not everything comes from right here. It all needs to be vetted by the eldership first, but the way it's given out has differing ways. Okay. There are certain qualifications for elders then they're very important to recognize it's out of first timothy 3 it says the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife sober-minded self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not a drunkard not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for god's church he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now there's one particular area for eldership. I think most of those things are fairly self-explanatory, but there's one particular area that I think has been taken out of context and caused some harm. And we're going to go highlight it on that. It says, "Able to teach." Able to teach doesn't mean that elder or that pastor has the gifting of a teacher. It just means they can teach. It doesn't mean they must be able to teach on absolutely everything you could possibly imagine. We have a plurality of elders. We have differing strengths, differing things we can talk about. There are actually even some things from the eldership team that we have not ourselves experienced that would come better from others. But there's a particular area here on who teaches. And it gets into a very sensitive topic. We're going to tackle two sensitive topics today. Are you ready? It's been two years of talking about this. Um, Sorry, just some behind the scenes. Uh, The idea of able to teach and who's going to teach. And is it only an elder who teaches from this spot on a Sunday morning? Just so you realize, this is not the format of first century church. Just... We've got to change the whole perspective here to get the full picture of what's going on. This is not the format. This is our century, not first century. So when we look at who teaches and who teaches what, the biggest argument comes from 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 would have been right before this passage I just read, and it's talking about I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Prior to that passage, it talks about all this kind of right behavior of both men and women within the church. Right after that, he talks about Adam and Eve and how Adam was the one that was called to lead. And then right after that, we get the definition of overseers. Now, here's the part that has become the big issue when it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That word teach is didaskane. Deraskein is not the generic word teach, but in English we treat it as the generic word teach. Deraskein means to teach morality. And what's ironic to me is why would you exempt that? Because that vastly changes the meaning of that phrase. I do not permit a woman to teach morality or exercise authority over a man. And the very following verses have all, are all about who's in charge, who is a overseer, who is an elder. And yet, for years and years and years and years, we say, nope, no women teachers, because right there. And why have we never gone back to the writings that were originally there and what they meant It's very clear to me that women are not elders, but to say that they have no place ever giving any sort of perspective or insight or wisdom within the church is harmful to the body. In two weeks from now, we are going to have another perspective shared on Stephen's death. Stephen will be stoned in two weeks from now. He's already been stoned, but we're gonna talk about it. And we decided it would be best to talk about dealing with death and grief and loss and struggling through that. And how do we do that through a biblical lens? I don't have that. I could give you all the knowledge in the world. I could give you an excellent message. But I don't have the experience. It would be better more beneficial to the body for this to come from someone who has the experience of walking through it and the perspective. That's what's gonna happen in two weeks. We're gonna have Margot Frost. She's going to present what it's like to walk through this from a biblical message. It's not gonna be on teaching morality. It's not gonna be exercising authority on anybody. It's going to be something that the eldership has asked her to do to share something beneficial to the body. When we move on to deacons, what is their role then? When we look at assisting the elders with the works of service. Now, what's interesting within that is that it's very vague when they talk about that. Assisting the elders with the works of service. And why is it vague? Well, the church is different from place to place. It's dynamic. What one church needs is not necessarily gonna be the same thing another church needs. And so it's what is current for that body. And so what is their qualifications then? Well, Acts 6, if we look at these as deacons, which some people don't because it's not specific within the writing, they were called to good repute, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. Now someone who is of good repute, good reputation, everyone thinks well of this individual. And if they're going to be thought well of by everybody, their life generally is walking with the Spirit. But they also need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be tuned in the right station. They need to be in step with Him. They need to be actually seeking Him day after day. And they need to be full of wisdom. And full of wisdom is actually different than full of knowledge. You can have a lot of knowledge and be really, really unwise. I've met people with a lot of knowledge and they make really, really poor decisions. Wisdom is also not tied to age. It's taking knowledge and applying it well. You could have a 10-year-old who's wise because they've been willing to listen to the advice of others, to the wisdom of others, and apply it to their own life. They're not wise in everything, but they can make a wise decision. But we want these people to be full of wisdom. They have either experiences they've gone through or they've been able to learn from the experiences of others. They don't need to make the mistake themselves. They're full of wisdom. Their qualifications are further expanded in 1 Timothy 3. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Can women be deacons? It's actually a much bigger conversation and argument than I'd ever thought it would be, but it has been. So I pulled up four different passages, four different translations of the same verse, verse 11 here. First one is from the New American Standard Bible. Women must likewise be dignified. From the New International Version, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. English Standard Version. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Holman Christian Standard Bible. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect. All four of these are well-respected translations. Two of them are talking about specifically women. Two of them are talking about specifically wives. These Bibles were put together and translated by very, very intelligent people, very studious people, very careful people, how is it that they don't say the same exact thing? And that's something we have to realize with an interpretation. These people are doing the best they possibly can, but they are not perfect. And so we have to go and look at what's there. If we have this so evident by four well-trusted translations, and there are slight differences here, we need to consider that when we go to just say, well, no, it's just this one and it's nothing else and I'm going to close my ears to anything anyone else has to say. And so we have to, as the best as we can when interpreting Scripture, leave our personal preferences out of it, leave our culture out of it, leave our tradition out of it, go to the traditions of the culture was written, go to the culture in the world that it was written in, go to the original meaning of the words that are there, go to the Greek, go to the Hebrew, it's a lot of extra work, but it's much healthier to get it right. So when we look at the word in contention here, it's gynaikes, which means a woman, and that can have a fuller meaning of either a bride, a wife, wives, wife, wife's possessive, wives, multiple women, woman, woman's, women. It can mean all those different things. Which one is it? Bought a book about a year ago, right there. Paul's Vision for the Deacons by Alexander Strouch. Uh, Very comprehensive book. Alexander Strouch is very, very thorough. Um, There are five views here on what this passage can mean. That's either talking about women in general, women as deacons, a deaconess, which is kind of a subcategory, not quite a deacon, but not just a helper, a women helper of deacons, and the wives of the deacons. And for every single one of those, he has an argument for and arguments against. All five. So which is it? I'm not sure if on your notes they might be there. There are links to all of this content, so you can go and see it for yourselves. Um, I went back. I looked at the Greek. I looked at the context of the passage. And comparatively, there's no possessive pronoun. There's no word there. There. So the idea of saying their wives isn't there. You could say wives, you could say women, but there's no their, there's no his, nor hers, there's no the, there's no possessive pronoun whatsoever there. So two of them we can already kind of rule out. So it's either women or it's wives. Then we have to look at the context of the passage and the context of who the writer is. Paul writes consistently. You can read his work and know it's his work. You can can see how he's writing and almost guess what's coming next. It's systematic in his writing. He's not all over the place. His points transition well from one to the other to the other. So when we have a whole passage on elders, and it talks about all the things they need to be, and there's no conditions on their wives, and then we go to the Very next set of verses talking about the deacons to have a specific passage on their wives saying, Hey, the elders' wives, they can be whatever, but the deacons' wives, they need special treatment, isn't consistent with what Paul would do. And then reading within that as well, we can see it makes the most sense that he's talking about deacons, but anything in cultural context, if you were going to apply women to it, you had to make a special statement because they were not considered. And it's unfortunate at the time, but if, they, if you wanted them to be considered as added into it, you had to mention it in there. And that's what Paul does. He says, hey, the deacons, the guys, you need to do this. Women, if you're deacons too, these things also apply to you. And then he finishes the passage on deacons. So here we have interpreted this over the years, and revisited it over the last two years, that this also means women are deacons just the same as men can be deacons. They're not elders, but they can be deacons. The last bit here. Who selected the apostles, the elders, and the deacons? I found this actually strikingly different. I'd never caught this before. Who picked each of these people? Who put them in place? Well, the apostles were chosen by God. Jesus Christ chose the twelve. Jesus Christ will later on call Paul on the road to Damascus. But then after that, there are actually other apostles. There's Timothy, there's Titus, and a few others that are also doing the works of the apostles. And they would have been actually raised up by the other apostles. But who called the elders? Well, right now they're the same people, but what happens later? What happens when they plant a new church? Well, that's the apostles. That's whoever's planting the church. They set in those that they deem to be worthy to be elders. That's the pattern we see in scripture. Well, what about the deacons? Is that also the apostles? No. This one's actually a little different. I never caught this before. The apostles, the elders said, hey, all of you, we're too busy for this. I want you to pick good people from amongst yourselves and bring them before us, and we'll set them in. Now, wouldn't that be something? I can't remember the last time I heard about a church doing that. Well, the elders said, we're too busy working on the things we're supposed to be working on. I want you all to get together, the whole church, and decide who's best to take on this task. Be a wild change in culture. How would you even do that? And the people who were probably going to take on the task would rally everyone together. It's like, hey, we need to do this. Let's have a meeting. It's different. Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? That's an interesting thing to look at in all of this. Is this biblical in, it must always be done this way? Or is it worded, this is how they did it this time? That's a hard thing to address in any area of scripture. And in this, the best thing I can say is sometimes. Because what happens when you have a group of people? They move to another part of the country. They meet some other believers there. They go, "Hey, we should get together. We should, we should do have a church." They're not apostles. They're not elders. They're not deacons. They're people. They're just people. They're saints. They want to gather. They want to have a community. Who sets in the elders? The deacons. The anything. Can we say, oh, sorry, can't do it. We need to go find ourselves an apostle. (laughs) We have to apply this the best as we can in the situations we are. The perfect situation is you would have apostles continuing to plant, 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 and they would manage that way. We don't always have the perfect situation. Sometimes we just have regular old life. We have to apply the scriptures as best as we can. And all of this, all of this is revolved around what is our particular role, what are we called to do, and why are we doing this? Why do we have multiple roles? Well, it's sharing the burden, and it's all coming from Exodus 18, when Moses was leading all the people of Israel, millions, and Moses had a direct link to God. He was talking to God face-to-face, so if you want someone to answer your question, that's Moses. People thought that way. Moses thought it that way. He was wearing everybody out. Moses' father-in-law comes along and says, this this isn't good. This is wearing you out. This is wearing the people out. You need help doing this. You need people who can lead thousands, people who can lead hundreds, people who can lead fifties, and people who can lead tens. And it was a good idea. Moses implemented it, and it helped. I mean, only the biggest things came to Moses, but things that were less and less and less degree were handled by others. Because the bigger the gathering is, the less it is a reality that the one person or the one small group of people are gonna be able to handle everything. It's just not a reality. And that's what we've tried to the best as we can do here. The elders don't handle absolutely everything. We couldn't, everyone would be really, really frustrated. Because there's a lot of everyday things that people are just in in their lives. They need to reach out to somebody. That's why it's wonderful that we have deacons, that we have home group leaders to help see people where they're at and be able to answer questions as they come up. And this involves actually a lot of humility, both as the leader of a church and the church itself. As a leader of a church, you have to be able to release the responsibility. You have to say to somebody else, can you do this? And I'm giving you the authority to go and do that. I'm not going to stand over your shoulder the whole time. I'm asking you to take care of it so I can focus on this. Just let me know how it's going that takes a lot of effort for some of us to release. Chuck and I can really align on this. We have the mentality of I'll just do it myself because I know if I do it myself, it's going to get done exactly the way I want it done. Some of you are of similar mind. Now, the place we need to be is, does it need to be exactly the way I want it done or does it just need to get done? Most of the time, 90% of the time, it just needs to get done and it'll be okay. And that's taken a lot of growth to be able to say. (laughs) That a lot of times it just needs to be taken care of. It doesn't have to be my way. And it's releasing that as a leader. And then on the side of the church, it has to be the mentality of, I'm probably every time I have something come up, I'm not going to be able to get one of the pastors every single time. Because everyday life happens every day. And we have four to 500 people here. And so if we wanna have five guys answer every everyday thing, you're gonna get really frustrated at how soon you get responses. And we're not gonna really be able to do any of our other responsibilities. And so that's why it's so wonderful that we do have home group leaders, that we do have deacons, we do have people that are able to speak into the lives of a smaller group of people. And we really deeply appreciate that. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. We say the face of the angel and we go, oh, the face of an angel, It's so nice, and cherub. and um, That's not what that means. Um, the, when people saw angels in the entirety of the Old Testament, they were awe-inspiring and terrible to behold. People fell on their faces as if dead. They were terrified at this person who had been before God and was sent by him to deliver a message. It's never just, oh, the angel has come, look how pretty. So the description of Stephen here is he is terrifying to behold. It would have been an intimidating individual that is standing before them. Someone that none of them have been able to speak up against. The different synagogues, you have the freedmen that are the ex-Roman prisoners. You have the Cyrenians, which are from North Africa. The Alexandrians, which are from Egypt. You have the Cilicia and Asia synagogue, which Cilicia is the capital of Tarsus. Tarsus is where Paul is from. This is very likely the synagogue he would have been attending. And it says that none of them could withstand him. None of them could answer his wisdom or the Spirit speaking through him. This is Paul, the great orator, the one who wrote the majority of the epistles in the New Testament, the one that we derive most of how church operates from, and he could not stand up to the wisdom of, Stephen. He was at Stephen's trial. He was at Stephen's stoning. This probably left a profound impact on Paul. And when we think, when we go through what Stephen talked about next week, we're going to see how much of the things that Stephen talked about we actually see reflected in Paul's future teachings. But when they couldn't withstand him, they just secretly instigated men against him. They found people that could say things that were ne- not necessarily true just to get rid of him. Because it's not about protecting God's word. It's not about protecting the law. It's not about prote- um, standing up for God. It's about tradition. It's about keeping the status quo. It's about keeping things are. It's about keeping their nationalism. And if they can't win, they'll cheat. They did it with Jesus. They're going to do it with them. They're going to continue doing it. I'll just get rid of you. When they spoke of Jesus destroying the temple, they're actually referring to John two, eighteen, when he says, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it again in three days, and talking about his own body, and then being raised up again after the crucifixion. And it talked about changing the custom of Moses, is talking about Matthew five, twenty one through forty eight, when he's talking about, You've heard it said of old, that you shall not commit adultery, but I say, you've heard it said of old, that you shall not um, give your wife a certificate of divorce. But I say, and he goes through all manners of these, you've heard these things said of old, but I say this. And he didn't remove anything Moses said. He made it harder. He said, it's not just about your outward actions, it's going to be your inward self. It's not just the letter of the law, it's the heart of the law. I didn't like that. I don't want you to make it harder, Jesus. I really like hating people. I really like the lust in my heart. I'm not really fond of my wife. I want to get rid of her and get a new, younger version. <laughs> they ain't like this. They don't like what you're saying, Jesus. like things the way they are. I don't want to change I want to follow God my way. But following God is more than just what you do. It's also about who you are. It goes back to the original question, who has God called you to be? What is your role? What is your purpose? What is your calling? And it's accepting this is who I am and accepting what I'm not no matter how much I want to have an excellent singing voice and be a musician and play on stage, that will never be. I could fight that and fight that and fight that and fight that and it would frustrate me and frustrate anybody who had to hear me. <laughs> or I could accept who I am and work into the giftings that God has given me and work into the calling that God has directed me into. And watch God's kingdom expand through that. It's about what you're becoming. You are a certain way right now. You're not perfect. It's really important that you accept that you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're not perfect. There are faults that need fixing in each and every one of us. We all have sanctification ahead of us. We all have growing that needs to happen. It's important to accept that as a part of who we are that we're on a continuum. We're moving more and more to the likeness of Christ and accepting who God's called me to be. Allow Him to convict you. Allow Him to direct you. Allow Him to grow you. Allow Him to teach you. Allow Him to shape you. and Allow Him to place you where you belong. I'm not going to tell you where that is. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that because if it comes from me, then you can blame me. But you've got to be able to allow God to direct you and be content with it. None of us can be anyone but who we are. And each of us were beautifully and wonderfully made for a specific purpose that God has called you to. And my dearest wish is that everyone here would flourish in that.